This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit with your host, Pat McMahon. Oh, I'm going to introduce you to two absolutely fascinating people. So don't even bother to go away because you're not going to forget either one of them. And you're going to be grateful to The God Show that, uh, that you met them here. Uh, one is the author of a book called What Makes You Come Alive, Loretta Coleman Brown, having been raised in Southern California, having lived in different parts of the country and the world, and uh, winding up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And she was just telling me uh, that that's part of the metro Atlanta uh, population. And I welcome you, Loretta, to the metro population called the audience of The God Show, which is international. They're listening to us in the Philippines right now, across America. And yes, in Boulder, Colorado, where you taught, and Pasadena, California, where you lived. Welcome to The God Show. Thank you so much. I just, I, I love this. Well, listen, if, if you're enthusiastic now, wait till the end of the show. Okay. <laughs> because we're going to talk about your book mostly. Uh, in fact, your book is so compelling in its introduction to the subject of what makes you come alive that we're going to have all too little time to talk about Loretta Coleman Brown. But I guess if we talk about the book, that's okay with you. Absolutely. But, but the, I, I'm in the book too as well. So The subtitle of what makes you come alive, and we'll explain the, the reason for that title later on. The subtitle is A Spiritual Walk with Howard Thurman. Who was he? Well, you know, Howard Thurman is one of those little-known, extraordinary people that graced our country. Uh, he was born in um, 1899 on uh, November 18th in Daytona Beach. Well, actually, he was born near West Palm Beach, but was uh, raised in Daytona Beach, Florida. Very bright young man um, and uh, became an extraordinary uh, mystic, theologian, and uh, civil rights activist. Uh, he wrote over 20 books. And um, I think he introduced a number of people to how you can incorporate or integrate mysticism and social change. When did you so, find out about Howard? Actually, late in my life, I was just so distressed because we both lived in Northern California at about the same time in the early 70s, but I had no knowledge of him. Uh, but I ran across him in... 2008, I was finishing up a uh, some training in spiritual direction companioning at the Shalane Institute for Spiritual Formation, and I was uh, I had to I had to write a final project, and I as I read and sat and prayed and listened to all that I had heard through the time that I had worked with them, I wondered whether or not in the history of the world, if there were any African or African-American mystics. Mm. Um, and so uh, I began to ask a number of people, including one of my clergy friends, and he said, oh, you don't know about Howard Thurman? 
And I didn't know about Howard. And I, and I ran into a lot of people who didn't know about Howard Thurman either. And so that uh, certainly piqued my curiosity. And as soon as I think I opened up the first book, it might have been Meditations of the Heart, I was, I was, I was uh, a follower. Um, and uh, I, I feel like I've been called to expose him to all of those people out in the world who have never heard of him. Like me. Yes. Uh, knew vaguely uh, about him. Um, and he led a life that was not denominationally limited. But is his mysticism what attracted you? You a Catholic? Actually, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school. But I was also a young child who liked to sit outside in the wind. Mm. <laughs> so I think I was, a. some might describe me as a contemplative. Uh, some do describe me as a mystic. Uh, I'm not quite sure if I am ready to fully accept that title. Um, but um, I sense some kind of calming, serene presence outside. Um, and one of the things that I noticed as I read Howard Thurman's uh, autobiography called With Head and Heart, the autobiography of Howard Thurman, he too was a young child who spent a lot of time outside and sensed a presence there um, and uh, actually began to meditate, go inside to God when he was about seven or eight years old and talked to a tree that he felt like was his, his oak tree. Well, and the Catholic history uh, is filled with mysticism and and mystical people. Uh, many of the holy people, many of the saints uh, are considered mystics. But he is called one throughout your book, and you've already mentioned uh, that quality of his. Tell me what makes him a mystic. Well, he was one of those people who was seemingly gifted from birth with this sense of the presence of God. And I think that sometimes people get afraid of the term or don't understand it. And basically, as he tries to simplify it for people, mystics are people that have had a direct experience of God. Um, and, it, and those experiences are very hard to describe, which is why I think a lot of times people are confused about mysticism and what a mystic is. Is it the supernatural? Some might describe it that way. I don't like to use those terms because often they're um, confused with some kind of occult or, you know, devil-worshipping things. Mm -hmm. There certainly are, as you just mentioned, many, many people who have had visions, who have had um, vo heard voices throughout the Bible, um, you know, people who have saw burning bushes. <laughs> yes. So... You know, and even as, as we discuss Howard Thurman, you know, that has been part of an African-American spiritual tradition as well. Well, even, even I, I, was, I was really quite surprised when I ran into the term mystic in your book for the first time because I don't associate it with the civil rights movement. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's because, again— People have been either afraid of the term 
or to use the term. Um, you know, uh, Howard Thurman was highly criticized for writing about mysticism in the late 30s, 1930s, early 40s, because, you know, people, were, you know, said they were looking for someone who would provide tools for liberation. But Howard Thurman never operated on the surface level. He always knew that there was something deeper going on. Um, and he certainly wasn't really paying much attention to that criticism. But he felt then that perhaps maybe he needed to talk about it in terms of mysticism and social change or social transformation. Well, even though I wasn't all that familiar with the life of Howard Thurman, as you've said, uh, that is not uncommon. But it certainly doesn't mean that he wasn't known around the world. He spent a great deal of time, Loretta, with some of the giants of our time. Talk about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. He, you know, I think one of the, the best qualities that he had was that he was open. And, and, and in some ways, he, he uh, exemplifies the kind of mystic that he was. And that is that they are living in the presence all the time. And so, you know, it was nothing for him to have had an opportunity to spend some time with Tagore, the famous Indian uh, poet, or with Mahatma Gandhi, mm. um, a visit in the mid-30s. Um, he he uh, was uh, connected to the King family even before King was born. Yes. You know, his, his, his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, um, and Alberta King were roommates in high school. Uh, <laughs> wow. And when the, when the Thurmans returned from their trip to India, um, having visited with um, Mahatma Gandhi, one of their first visits was with the Kings. Um, they had dinner with them, and it's estimated that Martin Luther King Jr. would have been about seven years old at the time. But I think that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. came to know Howard Thurman through his very classic book, Jesus and the Disinherited, as many civil rights activists who preceded King and followed King did. Keep in mind now, audience, I want all of you, yes, you, you who know where Stone Mountain, Georgia is, where Lorita comes from, I want you to pay attention. I want the folks in South Africa to pay attention folks in Europe to pay attention because she mentioned Jesus and the disinherited. Really important, solid information coming from that. But not yet. So just know that this is going to be valuable for you to wait around. Uh, this is like the prize in the Cracker Jack box, and we haven't even opened it yet. The idea of traveling to India... In the mid-30s, I, I can't even imagine. There were movies about Americans, uh, people from the West, the Western world, visiting India in the 30s. But it was so uncommon, uh, much less meeting Mahatma Gandhi. They, they actually got to be close, didn't they? They did. They, they did. Well, what's fascinating is that Thurman started writing about Jesus as sort of a leader of a nonviolent religion, probably as early as the late 20s. Um, but he was approached sometime in the um, you know, early 30s 
uh, about going to India. And in part, it, he, he was invited by um, some Christians, sort of, sort of similar to the YWCA group, um, who were having some difficulties uh, uh, being able to uh, invite people in India to Christianity. Um, and uh, so they thought that perhaps if they brought some people over that kind of looked more like them, <laughs> that certain encouraged some of them. But, but Howard Thurman wasn't really having any of that. He said he was willing to go and talk about, you know, uh, a variety of things, but he was not going to um, be an evangelist. Um, and so uh, reluctantly, in some ways, um, he did uh, take a, a pilgrimage along with his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, who was in her own right, an extraordinary woman. Um, and she gave lectures on, you know, women's history and women in the church. And she also was an uh, extraordinary musician, uh, you know, graduate of Oberlin and mm. uh, uh, led some musical events. And they went along with a, another couple, uh, Edward and Fanola uh, Carroll. And they spent six months there teaching and um, leading lectures, et cetera. Um, and uh, it, it, the meeting almost didn't happen, actually. <laughs> so, because the, you know they initially contacted uh, Gandhi, he was not doing, not feeling well, and then he contacted them, and they were not, you know, they were exhausted. And so, but about two weeks before they were supposed to return to the United States, this meeting got set up, um, and they were able to spend quite a bit of time. Uh, Gandhi was very curious about sort of. Uh, uh, what was going on with the the, the circumstances for um, Black Americans in the United States, and you know, was you know what what was the voting situation, and what about marriage, and you know, how did they survive slavery, and so you know, Howard Thurman just sort of gave him a great um, what we call a Negro history lesson, um, but then they turned to talk about Ahimsa and ta- Satyagra these ideas around um, love and nonviolence and civil disobedience. Um, and they just had an extraordinary conversation. As a matter of fact, it was uh, someone that had the, the, the wherewithal to take notes. Um, and it's now a book called, you know, Howard Thurman's Pilgrimage, no, Visions of a New World, Howard, Howard Thurman's Pilgrimage to India. Howard Thurman, uh, black activist in the mid-30s, yes. is chatting with Mahatma Gandhi and discovering how much that they had in common. Uh, the, the irony to me is, is that not only did I acknowledge early on in this conversation that I was almost totally unfamiliar with Howard Thurman, you said that that's true of almost everybody, including real leaders in the civil rights movement. And yet, while I know a couple of mediums, if I called on one of them to put me in touch with Gandhi on the other side, I would say how thrilled I am to meet you, sir. We're doing a program, by the way, about an activist uh, who was a mystic in the 30s. And Gandhi would say, oh, you must mean Howard Thurman. I mean that is that's goofy when on on that level on the other side of the world there is that kind of familiarity and only until your book came out have we begun to know Howard. 
Why? Why is it that he hasn't emerged as a major historical figure? Well, I think there are many reasons. One is that um, Howard Thurman was not a self-promoter. Um, he was fairly, I, I would think some people would describe him as fairly radical. Um, he also uh, was talking about things that a lot of people didn't understand and or were perhaps not interested in. He was a black man. He was a, you know, he was a colored man um, growing up um, doing Jim Crow. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a lot of reasons why. And I think oftentimes I find that we value the activism part over the spiritual part that undergirds some of these uh, social movements. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, oftentimes there is a person that sort of, you know, people, um, you know, kind of anoint as the leader of something when in fact you had all these other people that preceded him. Um, and Howard Thurman would be, be I, I call him the godfather of the civil rights movement. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, yes. We're talking, by the way, with Loretta Coleman Brown. Uh, the, the figure that we're talking about now is Howard Thurman, and the subtitle of the book is A Spiritual Walk with Howard Thurman. But the title of the book, if you're already intrigued and you want to look it up, it's What Makes You Come Alive. And so, Loretta, uh, without the presence of Howard, I ask you for a personal favor. Make me come alive according to the standards of Howard Thurman. How do I do that? Well, I think Howard Thurman would ask you to... Um, to take a lull in your doing, um, to take a little time to center down in some quietness and some stillness. And he would probably ask you to um, ask yourself a series of questions. He'd probably say, so what is it of all the things that you do in any given time or day that makes you feel as if every cell in your body is jumping for joy. Ooh. What makes you light up like a Christmas tree? Um, and so he was very much interested in encouraging people to seek their unique sacred call. And so um, this, this quote, which is very famous, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of one of those don't ask the world what what it needs, ask what makes you come alive, because mm -hmm. what the needs are more people who have come alive. That came up in a conversation that he had with a gentleman who had come to him for some, you know, counseling, sort of, you know, kind of spiritual counseling. And, uh, you know, he wasn't sure if he was going to want to do this and do that. And so Thurman just interrupted him and said, wait, you know, what you need to be doing is what makes you come alive. I mean, just think if, if in the world people were doing what made them come alive. Um, so, uh, and, and he, he was very much into that kind of thing about, you know, uh, you know, who are you or what do you want really? Um, or he might ask you, um, perhaps maybe you need to pause and listen for the sound of the genuine in yourself um, or the sound of the genuine in others or follow the grain of your own wood um, he, he was very much into having people individually come to some understanding about why were they here? What was your purpose? Did finishing the last page 
of your book make you come alive? Did finishing the last page make me come alive? Yes. No, actually, at the time, I was really exhausted. So I was happy to hit the send button. But what makes me come alive now are people, you know, I've, I've been able to lead a number of book discussions this year as part of the book launch. And what makes me come alive are the individuals who tell me thank you mm. or who feel like that there was something in the book that spoke to them. Um, and that made them begin to ask, "What makes me come alive?" I know everyone. Or, I know everyone doesn't, Loretta. But as long as you're talking about those people at book signings or lectures who come up to you and tell you about the impact that the book had on your life, that the life of Howard Thurman had uh, in their existence. But can everyone? Does everyone have the ability? to find out what that single electric moment is that makes them come alive? The question is not about whether or not they have the ability, it's about whether or not they have the courage. Mm. Because, you know, we all live in the world, there's so many things that are luring or that catch our attention or that we think we want to pursue, um, or we're doing it because you know, our family wants us to do it, or this has been the tradition, or I mean, I can just go down the list. Um, but when is it that we are able to step out of that? And, you know, there, there later in the book, I talk about, do you have the inner authority? Do you have the agency to step out of all of that and pursue what it is that you believe is your calling? So, so one of the remarkable things about Howard Thurman was that he was a master of inner authority. He didn't care if you were going to criticize him for leaving Howard University to go start an interracial, interdenominational church. And he didn't worry about whether or not when leaving that church that he was going to Boston University to kind of continue to do this interfaith work, you know, someplace else. He was very clear because he took the time to discern what he was being called to do. I mean, I remember they, I read, was reading about how they were badgering him about coming to Boston University. And he told the president, he said, well, I'm waiting for um, a word in my heart. So that's how he lived. He, he lived through this sense of inner discernment. And so he was not caught up. And this is part of what I think makes him a mystic. He was not caught up in all of these these um, institutional, you know, uh, doctrines, dogmas. He was not caught up in, you know, whether or not other people liked him. He was very clear that, um, and he even said in a in a um, a conversation with someone later in life, you know, I believe that when I was born, God put a live coal in my heart. I was His man, and there was no escape. So in his, his view, you know, not only is a mystic a person who is always sort of walking and living in the presence, but it is a person who has, as he describes it, yielded the nerve center of their being to God. He also, through mystical practices and so on, and I'm going back through so many elements of your book biographically looking at the practices of Howard Thurman, 
a lot of it was in and around the world of silence. And while he lived some time ago, in fact, right now, would you mind narrowing down uh, what period of time he did live? When was he born? When did he die? So that the audience has some idea of what's going on parallel to his life. Yeah. So um, November 18th, 1899 was when he was born. And he passed away in San Francisco, California on April 10th, 1981. 1989? 81. Oh, 81. 81. Okay. Well, that gives us some context. Because mm -hmm. I was thinking in his, his life and part of the search included silence, almost like Trappist monks, but he did it by himself. Um, well. Uh, I know, I, not exactly. Well, please correct me. Yes. So uh, he first, Thurman, because, you know, a lot of times people um, equate contemplative with silence and stillness and, you know, being quiet or meditating. Private meditation, yes. But Thurman was interested in anything that was going to spark for you the presence of God. And that could be great literature. That could be, I mean, sometimes he would have live Madonnas at his, you know, service. I, I'm talking about a real live person, woman holding a baby. Mm -hmm. he, it, he, was, he had liturgical dance in the early 30s, part of his service. Um, but he was very much um, a proponent of silence and stillness because he felt like Silence was healing. So, for example, um, many of the meditations that you find in Meditations of the Heart or, or the Inward Journey were passed out as part of his worship service, um, both when he was at uh, uh, Dean of the Rankin Chapel at Howard University, but also at um, Fellowship Church in San Francisco and also at Marsh Chapel. So that what he found out was that um, when uh, people were given an opportunity to come prior to worship service for some silent meditation. Um, and he always had a time in his service where there was a time for silence. Um, he found that when he had both of those going, that uh, request for pastoral counseling went down. Mm. And it was his mm. belief that somewhere in all of that deep stillness and silence of all of those people, there was some illumination that would come to individuals. Did he ever comment about the difficulty of finding silence and contemplative thought in this current world of noise and chaos we live in? Well, you know, there's always been pretty much a lot of noise and chaos. I think our noise and chaos is different in nature and in quality. But there were obviously a whole lot of other things going on in his lifetime that were also noisy and chaotic, like World War II, who cares? Mm -hmm. you know, something like that, right? But he felt like every person should take some time every day to stop and, and stop doing. He, he has a, a meditation called a lull in doing, where you just sit down and you do not think about what's going to happen next or what just happened. But you just sit there and let all those thoughts just go. Just for a few minutes. 
but but you know he's certainly an advocate of uh, of people finding ways to be able to um, stay in the presence as often as you can, um, and that it is in these moments of uh, stillness and quiet that we might in fact then have this what he called creative encounter or religious experience. He did, he tried not to use the word mystical because he realized that people just couldn't handle it. So he, <laughs> instead of a mystical experience, he would call it a creative encounter or a religious experience. You really are a student of this man, Howard Thurman. You, you didn't just write a biography. You seem to have, <laughs> you seem to have come alive just simply knowing him and knowing all of these elements of what made him come alive. And because of that, I want to know, particularly on the heels, Lorita, of a weekend of violence, some of it based on racial hatred, just another weekend of racial hatred and violence. I wonder if you have considered how he would react to the fact that even though he was a contemporary of ours who died as recently as 81, and certainly saw more than his share of that kind of racism, mm -hmm. how, how would he react to the constant continuance of racism, not only here, but around the world? Well, uh, you know, I was just reading a paper the other day by Peter Eisenstadt, who's one of the, um, one of three that I consider to be the most eminent Thurman scholars. Mm -hmm. It was called um, Howard Thurman and the Casting Out of Fear. And so Howard Thurman would say that he, I think he would, he would say that he believes that the source of so much of this is fear. Um, and that, you know, his, his early um, teachings and works were really focused on trying to help black people operate in this environment of, you know, sort of constant fear of attack, et cetera, of that. Um, but at the same time, also understand that black and white people are intertwined. And, um, and, and, and so, and they're, they're sort of like a um, prototype for all the varying different kinds of groups all over the world. So it might be, you know, um, tribal conflict someplace, or it might be a caste system, or it might be the upper class and the working class. It's just like anytime you have those kinds of categories, um, you are going to, you know, you're, you're going to be operating in this, this atmosphere of fear. Um, his antidote, at least for uh, people who have to live in this kind of environment is to come to some understanding that you are a holy child of God and that your worth is not dependent upon what other people are saying or doing outside of you. At the same time, um, and uh, Peter Eisenstadt just you know, points this out in this paper, that the more that a particular group becomes fearless and are not worried about that, the opposing group or the other group, so white people in this case, become more fearful. And we also always have um, the, 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 the problem of radicalization 
um, in our midst, whether it be in the United States or someplace else. I mean, we've seen this story over and over again, right? Have we not? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and quite honestly, when we're talking about Howard and his quest to let people know that if they really do pay attention, that they can come alive in arenas that never even occurred to them. But I wonder what happens, though, when a grown woman of some major consequence, a grown woman like like Loretta Coleman Brown, finds out that medical science is saying you've got 18 months to live without a heart transplant. We've been talking about the other book, What Makes You Come Alive. Let's talk about your book, your life, your heart. When the heart speaks, listen. Talk to me about those times in your life. You know, I've, I've just been recently rereading that book, <laughs> trying, to, trying to get some measure on have I gotten any better in the last 28 years. Right? <laughs> but um, yes, I, I mean, talk and see, and this was before I knew Howard Thurman. And I think one of the reasons why I was so attracted to his work, I'm going to tell my story in a second, but attracted to his work is that I, fa- I found a kindred spirit. It was like, oh, wow, here's another black person struggling in the world, except for they're kind of missed, you know, they're, they, they kind of are mystical and, you know, they, you know, they're deep into spirituality and, you know, because I always thought I was a little weird, but, you know, I was from California, so I just, you know, <laughs> rubbed it off to that. <laughs> I was from California. Maybe right. I am a little weird. Yeah, right. So, but, you know, I always just had that, that deep spiritual side of me that I just sort of said, well, this is who I am, and I'm not going to talk to everybody about it. So, so when, I, when I discovered Howard Thurman, I was like, oh, wow, here's somebody who I could have been talking to, you know, that, that understands my story. But, but yes, I, uh, I am a grown woman uh, teaching at University of Colorado, and I'm like thinking, you know, I, I had had open heart surgery in the middle of graduate school, and I thought I was done. And um, only to find out that I have a um, genetic disorder that, um, you know, causes the heart to, heart muscles to, to um, thin and also dilate, and so the heart eventually becomes like a, a rubber band that's lost its elasticity. Um, and it's kind of like a big blob. And if you don't have a transplant, you die of heart failure. And so they sort of presented this to me saying, oh, yeah, you're going to, you, you didn't know <laughs> this and you're, you're headed for a transplant. And I was absolutely terrorized mm. and hysterical and uh, fortunate enough to be working with a um, a, a therapist who worked with people with chronic health conditions and who suggested to me that I needed to talk to my heart about it. And I'm like thinking, oh, you know, I don't need psychobabble right now. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, and uh, but I did. I sat, I went home and I thought, oh, you know, and I, I, I knew about Jung, Jungian active imagination. So it wasn't sort of a new concept to me. But Loretta, you had so many things going for you. And not only a heart transplant, but a kidney transplant. And there must have been some time when you looked up, sideways, 
at the life of Howard Thurman, anything outside of you, and you said, why me? Or didn't you say, why me? Oh, I did say, why me? Oh, absolutely. And I actually had a mystical experience where I was saying, why me? And this voice within me said, why not you? Mm. Maybe this is your part in the plan. So step up. Maybe this is part of the plan. No, part of, this is your part in the yes, plan. Yes, yeah. Yeah, as maybe we all have some kind of blueprint. Uh, but see, when they say uh, you have 18 months to live without a heart transplant, you didn't know that you would get the heart, right? That is correct, except for that I've had a mystical experience. And, you know, I mean, several, right? So, I, you know, I put it out there because I was like, well, you know, do I need to do this? And um, I and I was, I, I remember telling my doctor, I was waiting for a sign and she looked at me like I was crazy because I was in the hospital in heart failure. Like, this isn't the sign. But uh, so, you know, someone called me up out of the blue and said, oh, you, you need a heart trap? Well, I have a member of my congregation that had one three or four years ago. Mm. Mm. I'm going to connect you to. And, you know, he was the, I think, third black man in the state of Colorado to have a heart transplant. I was soon to be number four. Wow. So there, wow. It, there were these series of things that happened, um, including a presence coming to me and saying, look, you, you, you've got to have this heart transplant. You can't wait until the end of the academic year. You cannot wait until you can wait until the end of the holidays so that you can be with your family. But after the holidays, you've got to go on the list. I was on the list four days, which is unheard of. <laughs> wow. And out of a mystical cloud in my life came Loretta Coleman Brown. And uh, my producer, Rosemary, said, listen, uh, you're going to get this book. What makes you come alive? And I said, what is it about? She said, Howard Thurman. I said, who is that? It sounds familiar. Uh, but uh, what does he do? And then she told me just a little bit about what he did. Then I got the book. And then mystically, I was introduced to Loretta Coleman Brown just now, today, a little while ago. And you're going to introduce us to another side of Howard Thurman. His relationship with Jesus. He's about as interdenominational as you can possibly get. But to Howard, Jesus was a pretty important companion, wasn't he? Absolutely. He often would say that, you know, I prayed to God, but I talked to Jesus. <laughs> um, and he certainly was one who scrutinized the Gospels because he felt like there was a deeper message um, that we needed to pay attention to. Um, we needed to pay attention to what Jesus was saying about uh, who we need to worship, that is, God alone, and not all these other things of the world. Um, and that, you know, our worthiness had already been established by the fact that we were created by God. That's what Jesus was, was trying to tell us in part. Um, in addition to that, um, he felt like Jesus was a psychological genius, that he was trying to help people understand that there was a place within them where they could have inner freedom. And it didn't matter what other people were doing out there in the world. You know, he, he, he also grew up as a member of a minority group in Roman-occupied 
um, territory. Um, and so uh, he he wanted his own people. He was never really preaching to the aristocracy, to the Sadducees or the Pharisees. He was talking to regular everyday people saying, look, you need to understand who you are. You were created by God and that, um, that you cannot allow your inner world, what's inside of you to be, um, uh, to, to be subject to what other people say and do. Um, if, if a person knows the right word or the right epithet to, to, to hurl at you, that throws you off your equilibrium, they will always have you under subjection. Um, so yes, Jesus was very important. Um, and uh, in this classic book, which I believe every person in the world should read, <laughs> Jesus and the Disinherited, um, Thurman basically wonders what happened to the religion of Jesus. It's like, you know, as far as he was concerned, the religion of Jesus is what, is what Jesus was saying and doing every day. With and, he was, and he was a Jew. Yes. And with no intention of starting a religion. Um, and, and, and he was not a Christian because that happened after he died. So, um, you know, Thurman had a lot of difficulty with whatever this other thing, this religion about Jesus that arose that, you know, was uh, adopted uh, by uh, uh, Constantinople and, and uh, Constantine, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, and that became an institution, you know, and that allowed for things like slavery and lynchings and uh, you know, the Holocaust and, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and so he wanted us to get back to the religion of Jesus, how Jesus talked to people, how Jesus was with people, um, and um, to pay attention more to that. See, and you but, rascal, Lorita, you rascal, you smoothly went into an area of your book that I found most particularly interesting, and it's what I was talking to the audience about that we would get to, and that is Jesus and the disinherited. Well, you've been talking about Jesus. Who were the disinherited, and who were they then? Well, let me just say that originally, um, Thurman wanted to call the book The Hounds of Hell, but the editor was like, no way. Um, but he wrote this book for not only black people in the United States who were struggling under Jim Crow and discrimination all over the country, it didn't matter whether it was the South or not. And to those who were involved in anti-colonial or anti-imperial um, situations around the world, you know, where people had come in to convert, but at the same time were, you know, uh, uh, colonizing people in other countries. Um, so he wrote this to say, look, here are the ways in which you might be able to operate um, and, and live up to your full potential, um, even though these circumstances may be existing. So in his heart, he really wanted to find a way because he saw, so, as you said, he saw so much. I mean, he saw people absolutely devastated 
feeling totally unworthy because they were living as second-class citizens in the United States, if, if, if you want to call them citizens at all. Because, you know, at that time, they didn't even have the right to vote. So he wanted to find a way to help them um, live a, a life. And one of the things he noticed is that those children who had been raised to believe that they were, that they were children of God, that they had been created by God, and that they were worthy because they had been created by God, seemed to be able to have, they seemed to have higher self-esteem and to be able to live with a sense of dignity and respect for themselves that other people didn't. How did so, he handle? How did he handle the the consummately disinherited people in India when he visited there as an adult in the mid '30s? And not only is it a land of colonial unrest and imbalance, but also the caste system existed then and still does, which is about as disinheriting a system as you can find. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he, you know, he saw those um, parallels. I mean, that was part of the reason why they sort of wanted him to come because they, you know, they, there was this idea that they, oh, these people needed, you know, Christianity, et cetera. But Thurman said, and they had, they had a long talk about it. I mean, Gandhi admitted that there were some serious problems in India. And one of the reasons why they were having so many issues with getting the British out is because they had their own personal issues. They had, you know, they had poverty um, and they had the caste system. And they still do. So uh, he, he, he understood that this was not only a problem for people um, in the United States, but this was a, this was a international issue. Wasn't problem. Jesus himself one of the disinherited? Absolutely. Yes. And why he was so intrigued with Jesus. He felt like he was just providing a model for how it is that one living under these conditions can live. Can, hey, it's kind of like walking through the valley of shadow of death and fearing no evil. How do, how, how, do you, how do you move through the world and not be um, overcome by it? And that Jesus was providing that roadmap, that blue, you know, that that uh, that way of being. But it's very much connected to God. You have to trust God, and you have to believe that God is going to get you through these situations, and that you know you you you've got to one deal with this fear. You've got to you've got to also deal with this idea of. Um, immoral de uh, deception uh, uh, um, or uh, uh, um, what, what I want to call it, describing um, uh, or attributing uh, people with, uh, with compliments that they don't deserve. You know, it's kind of that buttering up the boss kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that you cannot continue to have bitterness and hatred in your heart towards those people that are oppressing you because it will destroy you. Hate you've, lived, destroy. you've lived, Lorita, in a number of places uh, with a number of different attitudes toward justice. You live in the Deep South now, in Georgia. And whether it's where you live or some of the states around you, I wonder if that atmosphere and that environment causes you even 
even you with your background and your academic education and your personal experiences and your life with Howard Thurman, I wonder if you just simply have said to yourself at one time or another, it's just never going to go away. This hatred is never going to go away. And yeah, some things have been improved and some things just simply hover. Have you just simply said, we'll always have some form of this? No. And let me tell you why. Please. I think that the same spirit and divine presence that lives within me lives within everyone. I, I firmly believe that um, we have a lots, lots of people who are deeply asleep, uh, th that they don't know who they are because if they knew that they were holy children of God, they would never be hating other people. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, all of these groups, but particularly in the United States, uh, we have created sort of an identity that would suggest, and I wrote, used to, I, I wrote about this many years ago as a psychology professor, that um, part of being white means you have to be better than a black person. It's embedded in the meaning of whiteness. And so when you encounter someone who is obviously uh, not fitting your stereotype of what you want them to be, then it's either threatening and very threatening to you and your reality as, as you have internalized it. Um, and, uh, and one of the ways that you can deal with that is by uh, disassociating or projecting onto that person. So we have a lot of healing to do. That's my perspective. We have a lot of healing to do. How long is it going to take us, Loretta? Uh, well, you know, as they said about the people wandering in the desert, as long as it takes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I, you know, I don't know about you, but I certainly have seen some shifts um, over time, right? I mean, we certainly are not in the same place as we were when I entered the world um, you know, where you had separate accommodations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think that the issue is much, much deeper. I, I, I think that there are so many people who do not know that they are spirits and that they are highly identified with their bodies and whatever that means to them. Babies arrive here not knowing anything, right? They, they know absolutely nothing about who they are or who they're supposed to be or any of that, that's all taught. Um, and, uh, you know, as they say, hate is, you know, one of those things that's carefully taught. You don't just come out the wound hating. So, you know, I used to study stigma. So if you can, if you can stigmatize something, you can destigmatize something. Ooh, that's if good. You've to, if you've learned to hate something, you can, you can unlearn that. Well, I'm glad you're optimistic about it. And um... <laughs> But I think that the most important part, and I think this is the part that is most linked to Thurman, is that you um, need to establish your own inner freedom. Do you understand? I mean, you need to understand that 
no matter where you are in the world, God is still present with you. And that uh, it is important for you to focus on why are you here? What is your purpose? It is important for you to cultivate a relationship with the spirit as the spirit is your own personal GPS or God positional system um, to give you guidance and to help you even in these situations that are dangerous. Now, I, mean, I look around now at all the courageous people. You got all these courageous people out there that are doing things that, you know, they're getting death threats every day, but they're still doing what they're doing. And they're inspirational to us. Yes. So is Loretta Coleman Brown, and so was Howard Thurman. But now comes the real challenge, because we only have two minutes left in this conversation, at least for this time around, Loretta. And on The God Show, if we can embrace justice at some time in our lives and in this society, can we embrace mysticism in today's society in order to reach that level of justice and understanding? I think that we're seeing more and more of that. I think people are beginning to understand that you can't just sit in your house and meditate alone. And I also think that people are understanding that you can't just be involved in um, social movements or social justice in the street because it's not sustainable and that the two must come together so that if we are willing to allow the spirit to guide us, we can move much further along than if we decide that we're going to do it ourselves. Would Howard Thurman be optimistic? Oh, absolutely. Because he felt like there was something much deeper going on. It's kind of like life is continuing to go on regardless of whether or not people are cooperating. <laughs> um, and I believe that eventually people will um, come to some understanding of who they are. But I think it's going to take, it might take a thousand years. Who knows? I think that, um, at least for me, one area of understanding uh, that I've come to uh, is what makes me come alive about a lot of the things that we've been talking about. And that is the book with that title, written by Loretta Coleman Brown and subtitled A Spiritual Walk with Howard Thurman. And if now you know a little bit more about Howard Thurman than you did before, I do. But then again, I paid attention to The God Show. This is Pat McMahon.